turn in your Bible with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And I want to begin a three-part series of messages uh, on what is a very difficult subject. As a matter of fact, uh, when these messages go up online, I'm not sure that uh, there are some mediums that will let them play. They will be censored uh, because they don't give the party line. They don't give uh, what the society around us wants to hear. And yet, it's important to me that you know the truth. It's important to me that I explain to you what the Bible has to say and that we follow the Scripture and not what is the popular opinion of our day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a very difficult subject and yet a very needed subject. I didn't choose it because I was looking for something to say. I chose it because I felt you were leading me to it. And Lord, I know that there are others who can say it far better than I can say it. But I'm going to do my very best. And Lord, I yield myself to you. I pray that the Holy Spirit will take control of my thoughts and of my speech. That, Lord, what I say will be pleasing, first of all, to you. And that it will then be helpful to others. But Lord, my desire today is to help us to be biblical. Uh, not to be popular, but to be biblical. And I pray, Father, that as we come back to your word, that you will give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There was an airliner that was zooming across the sky, and suddenly the pilot comes over the intercom with a message to the passengers that says this, this is your captain speaking. I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that we've had an electrical problem in the cockpit. Our radio has gone out. We have no communications equipment working. Secondly, all of our navigation equipment has malfunctioned. We have no clue where we are. Now for the good news. We have a tailwind and are making excellent progress. You know, it's unfortunate that we live in a society that's a lot like that announcement. We're making incredible progress. Think about it. We live in the most prosperous, powerful society in the history of the world. Technology is constantly changing and bringing into our very hands things that we could never have imagined before. You remember when the computer was a big box? Actually, it sat in a room. But then they got it down to a big box that sat on top of a desk or a table with a big screen on top of it. And now it's in your very hand. There isn't anything you can't do walking down the street of any city because that computer is in your hand. We've made so many advances. Our heads are spinning at times at the pace of the change that's going on around us. And that's the good news. We're making excellent progress. But as Christians, we often don't have a clue. We don't have a clue where we're going. And that's the unfortunate part. I want to read to you an article that illustrates what I'm talking about. I don't read the article in order to cast stones. I'm not trying to be judgmental or hateful here. I'm using it as an illustration. I think that there are a lot of people who are like this young woman who put in the same situation probably would have given as uh, shallow an answer as she gave. But she's a popular uh, Christian musician, probably the most popular Christian musician right now uh, in the country. Uh, I'm going to continue to listen to her music. I'm not cutting her off. I'm just telling you this illustrates what I'm talking about, that we're making great progress, but we have no idea where we are or where we're going. This is an article from the Christian Post. It says, When yet another Christian celebrity fails to give a straight answer on a hot-button moral issue, it reveals a deeper problem. Back in September, this is last year, an article in Rolling Stone announced, A Christian singer is bigger than Drake and Ariana Grande this week. That singer is, and I'll leave her name out, the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter whose brilliant voice, soulful style, and hope-filled lyrics has won fans well beyond the contemporary Christian genre. She's becoming a regular on talk shows and in national publications and has officially earned the coveted status of crossover artist at just 27 years old. But with, a, with broader appeal comes a challenge, maintaining one's identity. Not as a Christian singer, but as a Christian. Sadly, it's a challenge many Christians, uh, Christian celebrities have struggled to handle, the article says. 
Last week, during an interview with iHeartRadio, this singer's name, was asked, given her recent appearance on a very popular daytime talk show, whether she believes homosexuality is a sin. I can't honestly answer that, she replied. I have too many people that I love, and they are homosexuals. She went on to explain that since she's not God, she can't say one way or another. Instead, people should just, in her words, read the Bible and find out for themselves. For a young woman with a skyrocketing career, calling homosexuality a sin in a public forum could mean closing a lot of doors and alienating a lot of fans. There's a real cost that comes with taking a stand for the Christian view of sex in marriage. Before we get too judgmental, as I have already indicated, I have known some that were much more trained theologically who, when placed in the same position and asked some of those same kinds of questions, gave answers that just simply baffled the mind. How is it that we who name the name of Jesus Christ and who say the Bible is the book that we follow, this is our instruction manual in this world to prepare us for eternity, how is it that we cannot know what the Bible has to say on some of the most fundamental issues that face us in America today, and for that matter, in the world today? I'm utterly, I'm, I'm utterly baffled that as Christians we can't give a clear answer. I don't think sometimes it's because we can't give a clear answer. I think sometimes it's because we're afraid of the backlash if we give the clear answer. And when it comes to the music business, it's about dollars and cents. It's about the profit-loss margin. It's about the bottom line more than it is about faithfulness sometimes uh, to the truth of Scripture. And so today, that's what we're talking about, human sexuality. We're talking not just about homosexuality, but human sexuality in a very general way. And for us to begin that discussion that's going to last over these next uh, three weeks, I have a very simple outline. It's a foundational outline just to give you a basis for what you believe and why you believe it. And we begin with point number one, God's divine design. Now, if we don't start from the same point, we will never end up at the same destination. If we don't see the things the same way, we don't look through the same glasses, the same worldview, then we will never see things the same. And that's the problem. That's the problem. Notice, if you will, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is God speaking about creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Will you please notice who it is that's making man? It's God. He didn't evolve. He didn't grow from some lower life form into what he is today. God created man in his image. According to our likeness, let, us have, let, him have dominion, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female. Male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And He placed Adam and Eve in this incredibly beautiful garden. They could eat of any tree of the garden they wanted except for the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had made them exactly how He intended them to be, male and female. If you look over at the end of chapter 2, we'll skip over the creation of Eve taken from Adam's side. and We'll just look at the conclusion of that, of, of that discussion of God creating not only Adam, but creating Eve. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. At this moment, at this time, there is no fear, there is no shame. It's one man, one woman for one lifetime. They are different from one another, but they are perfectly complementary to each other. And from that complementary aspect of their lives is the potential of bringing forth children. 
reproducing, replenishing the earth. Now, the problem that we face today is that we'll never agree about sexual issues and human sexuality if we come at it from differing worldviews, from differing starting points. I don't expect the world that's outside the church that doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe the Bible, doesn't believe in Jesus, I don't expect the world ever to understand what we believe and how we follow Jesus and what we see the Scripture says. I don't expect them to ever to understand that. But I'm baffled that those of us who name the name of Christ those of us who say that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, those of us who say we read our Bibles, we can't come to a right understanding of what the Bible has to say on these issues. How is it that our worldview is so incredibly confused? For the Christian, our beliefs about everything are rooted in the truth that there is one God and one source of authority. We don't look to the medical journals. We don't look to the psychological journals as our means of authority. We look to the Word of the living God. People understand sexuality through one of two possible lenses. Either it represents a personal expression of identity and feelings, or it is an intentional aspect of God's design for humanity. That's the only two ways you can look at it. Either you can make sex and human sexuality, whatever you think it should be, or God is the one who created in the beginning, and God, who is the originator, God, who is the creator, God is the one who writes the instructions, the rules for, we follow what God has to say. This choice ultimately boils down to whether we acknowledge that God created our sexuality. You understand that if God didn't create it, then we can make it anything we want it to be. We can follow our feelings anywhere we wish to follow them. But if God created it, then God's intention is a fixed intention. He created male and female. Two different people who are totally complementary to one another, who coming together as husband and wife have the potential of replenishing the earth, reproducing God's design for our sexuality is written as the Creator. It is written both on our anatomy and in the Scripture itself. And it's only the rebellious spirit of Christians that rejects the Creator's design and seeks a greater God, their own human autonomy or their own human happiness rather than saying, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of the one true God, as one who believes that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, I will bring myself into agreement with what the Scripture has to say. For Christians, morality isn't simply based on not hurting someone else, but our reverence it's based on our reverence for the Creator's design and intentions. I hear it all the time. I'm sure you hear it all the time. If it doesn't hurt anyone, what does it matter? Well, that's true for those who don't know Christ and those that are outside His church and those who don't believe the Bible. But for those of us who believe in Christ, who believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of the, uh, of the living God, for us, it's about reverence for the Creator's design and reverence for the Creator's intentions. We don't get to make that up. We don't get to change that because we feel something that is different than what God intended. Those are things that are fixed by God and they're expressed in the Scripture themselves. The real sexual crisis of our day is not the LGBTQ agenda or the numerous heterosexual forms of immorality. Those are just the symptoms of the greater challenge. And that greater challenge is getting even Christian people to embrace God's design for our sexuality. Just getting people who sit in the churches to say, what God says is final. He is the creator. He created the male and female, perfectly complementary to each other. This is not a matter of subjectivity, my feelings. This is a matter of objectivity, the way God created my body and what He says is the intention of the way He created my body. And I yield myself 
to God's order. See, part of the problem is that for the last two generations or so, maybe three, most of our children have gone to public schools. And in those public schools, they've been introduced to a value-neutral, a value-neutral view of sex. And they've been told not to judge other people. If there's any verse of Scripture that people outside the church know, it's don't judge lest you be judged. They have absolutely no idea what what chapter of the Bible it comes out of most of the time. They know nothing about the other surrounding scriptures where judgments have to be made. They completely pull it out of its context, and they would never tell their children, get in the car with anybody who comes along and says, I'll give you a ride. They teach them every day, you have to make judgments on these issues about people, who you go with, who you hang with. You have to make judgments every day. Who are you to judge? Just tell your kids to go with whomever they wish to go. You would never do that. No loving, thinking, caring parent would ever do that. And judgments have to be made, not to condemn, but to recognize that some things are good and some things are bad. And in a value-neutral system where you're told not to judge people, you're setting children up to be confused about what is right and what's wrong. Then they leave the elementary schools and the high schools and we send them off to secular universities and in those secular universities it's not uncommon for professors or other fellow students to encourage sexual promiscuity or experimentation I mean after all these are critical landmarks of maturity and discovery of who you really are you can't really know unless you get out there and you 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 do these things in order to find out if this is you or not This kind of approach to sexuality in our amoral, meaning no moral society, a value-neutral society, is the result of at least two anti-Christian worldviews. It's the reason why we can't agree. People outside the church can't agree with people. And people uh, people in the church can't agree with those outside, and those outside can't agree with those that are inside because we have different worldviews. We look at life differently. We have different starting points. We start with the creation of God. He made them male and female, period. We don't get to make that what we want it to be. We bring our submission into what God has made us to be. But outside the world, they have a completely different worldview. It's based on postmodernism and based on humanism. I can remember 45 years ago when I was in Bible college and I was having to write papers about humanism. And and as I was researching so that I could write these various papers about humanism, I couldn't help but think to myself, 45 years ago, does anybody really believe this? Now it is the dominant view. Did you know you're the center of the world? Everything revolves around you. You're the all-important one. You are the God of your own universe. Postmodernism says that there is no right or wrong. There are no absolutes. And they are absolutely sure (laughs) that there are no absolutes. They're absolutely sure. So you're the center of the world. You're the God of everything. And there are no absolutes. They're absolutely sure about it. And you get to make up life however you want life to be. That's postmodernism. That's humanism. It aims to give us the freedom to define our own reality and our own morality. And that's what's happening. But why should that be the case for those of us who name the name of Christ? Why should that be the case for those of us who come to a church or come to churches that preach the Word of God and uphold the Lord Jesus and preach the Gospel? Why should that be the case for those of us who say we are followers of Jesus Christ and we call Him our Lord? If you want to know the ultimate or one of the ultimate visible expressions of the postmodernistic humanistic thinking, it's the transgender movement. It's all about me. I'm the God of my own world, and nobody can tell me what's right or wrong. I get to define it for myself. There is no God who made me the way I am. I evolved into what I am. And now it's not about what I am physically, it's about what I am in my feelings and in my emotions and in my thinking. 
Gender becomes something we create in our own thoughts instead of a physical reality to which we adjust our thinking. Do you understand? Instead of that which is objective, we build our lives, people do that don't know the truth of Scripture, they build their lives around that which is subjective. And do you understand that feelings are always changing? I didn't feel necessarily like getting up this morning. Feelings are always changing. If you're building your life around things that are about emotions and how you feel at any given moment, you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to make some really bad decisions. Decisions have to be made, at least for believers, off of that which is objective, that which is certain, that which comes to us from the one who is the creator. And we say, God, we bring ourselves into conformity to you. Did you know that in some parts of America, when it comes to the matter of changing genders, they used to call it sex reassignment surgery. But I'm told that today, in many of those places, they call it, now listen to the change, from sex reassignment surgery, they call it gender confirmation surgery. Uh, surgery. Gender confirmation surgery. You hear the difference? I'm not changing from one gender to another. I'm simply being confirmed in the gender that I feel that I am. Again, I'm not throwing stones here. But this is a name you'll realize or you'll recognize. Charlize Theron. She's a Hollywood movie star. You've probably seen a movie or two that she's been in. I don't know if they were decent to see or not, but you probably have seen one. This is from... April the 19th, 2019. This is the article. Charlize Theron is receiving applause for her open and accepting approach to motherhood. The actress is the mother of two children, August and Jackson, ages three and seven, whom she adopted. When she was spotted taking a break from her press tour for her upcoming comedy, Long Shot, to drop Jackson off at a music lesson in Los Angeles... The paparazzi captured pictures of the child wearing a skirt and leggings, which apparently caused some confusion among reporters who had assumed Jackson was a boy. When prompted by the Daily Mail about the gender of her oldest child, whom she adopted years ago, Theron stated that Jackson identifies as a girl. I thought she was a boy, to, and I thought she was a boy too until she looked at me when she was three years old and said... I am not a boy, Theron said. Three years old? I don't even remember being three years old. Do you? There used to be a day that you would have called this child abuse. Now, if you don't accommodate your children in these manners, you're the child abuser. The article goes on. The news of Jackson identifying as a girl is not exactly new, however. In December 2018, while filming Variety's Actors on Actors series, Theron told Michael B. Jordan, I don't think that's the basketball player, Michael B. Jordan that she was the mother of two beautiful African-American daughters. She echoed the sentiment months later to the Daily Mail, I have two beautiful daughters who, just like any parent, I want to protect and I want to see thrive, Theron said before adding that she would not be the one to decide how her children identify or how they wish to present themselves to the world. She continued, They were born who they are and exactly where in the world both of them get to find themselves as they grow up and who they want to be is not for me to decide. My job as a parent is to celebrate them and to love them and to make sure that they have everything they need in order to be what they want to be. And I will do everything in my power for my kids to have that right and to be protected within that. Now, that makes perfect sense in a world of postmodernism and humanism. It makes absolutely no sense from a Christian worldview. When you believe that God is the one who created, this is His divine design. He created them male and female. They were complementary to each other. They can come together as one. They can produce children. God is the one who stamped His image. When you believe that God is the one who makes the rules, 
Well, then you don't look at life the same way that Charlize Theron looks at life. Rather than the physical reality being the truth about our sexuality, that's objective. It's now a matter of how you feel that defines your sexuality. That's subjective. But that's not God's divine design. God's divine design is one man and one woman coming together as husband and wife where they have the potential, whether they do or not, they have the potential of bringing forth children, replenishing this earth. That is God's divine design. You say, okay, that's God's design. Then why is there so much confusion? Because let's be honest about it. There are some people that are confused about who they are. They're confused about their gender. They're confused about their sexuality. They're confused about who they love or who they should love. In fact, they are confused. We acknowledge that to be true. Well, if God's divine design is that it be one man and one woman coming together as husband and wife to reproduce children, to enjoy sex within marriage, and to enjoy the children that come from that marriage, if that's the way God intended it to be, then what in the world is wrong? That brings me to the second point. From God's divine design to the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall. I'm not talking about the season of the year. I'm talking about what happened to Adam and Eve. They were placed in this beautiful environment, this garden, and God had told them you can eat of any tree of the garden except for one. Notice how the story plays out in chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? The very first thing Satan does is question the authority of Scripture. Do we really have to take God at His word? And everybody... Everybody who asks that question, do we really have to take God at His word? No matter, how you, no matter how you word that question, you're acting on behalf of Satan rather than on behalf of God. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? By the way, He said more than that. He said, you can't eat of any tree, you, can't, you can eat of any tree except for one. Satan didn't leave the exclusion of the one. He includes every tree. You shall not eat of every tree. Well, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. I don't know if you noticed something. She leaves out two words and she adds something. She, she leaves out the word freely, that you may freely eat it. God had said you could freely eat of any of these other trees but this one. But she leaves the word freely out. Satan is already beginning to work within her mind to make her question what God has said. And he says, you shall not, or excuse me, in verse 3, lest you die. He says, lest you surely die. He left, no, he left no question about it. If you partake of that tree, you will surely die. And she adds, not only should we not partake of that tree, she said we shouldn't even touch it. God didn't say that. We'll give her a break here. We'll assume that maybe she was thinking, you know, if I stay away from it and don't touch it, it won't be a problem for me. Maybe she's just trying to keep her distance. But she's being tempted. Satan is calling into question the authority of the Word of God. But now Satan goes beyond that. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he directly contradicts God's Word. Can I just say that every time a Christian says something other than what the Bible says about human sexuality, you are contradicting God. You're contradicting God. Notice verse 5, for God, he goes on, for God, Satan does. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, that's the lust of the flesh. It was good for food. 
that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Wow, look at the middle of verse 8. What happens when God comes to meet with them in the, in the, in the evening to, uh, to fellowship with them? It says, Adam and his wife did what? They hid themselves. Notice down in verse 10. He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Down in verse 12. Then the man said, the woman. Oh, let's, let's blame it. By the way, ladies, God didn't blame you. God blames Adam. God holds Adam accountable. Somebody said, Eve ate us out of house and home. <laughs> That's not exactly right. God holds Adam responsible. He submitted to his wife rather than leading his wife in these, in these areas. He partook willingly and knowingly understanding the consequences Verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. At the end of verse 13, the serpent, she says, deceived me and I ate. Over in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten. And then he goes on to list the consequences. But look at the end of verse 19, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. You hear what he says? Because you disobeyed me, Adam you're going to die. Now understand something. Death began at that moment physically. Death immediately began spiritually. They were hiding themselves. They were separated from God. They were fearful. They're, they're, they're working with their own hands to cover up their own nakedness by, by sewing together fig leaves. And thus is what we call the fall of man. At that moment, when Adam and Eve partook of that forbidden fruit, the entrance of sin into this world... Now, for you to fully understand it, you've got to go with me. Keep your place there, but go with me all the way back to the book of Romans. All the way back to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And I want you to see that from Adam and Eve, all of us inherit the sin nature. All of us inherit a propensity toward evil. All of us are broken people. Sometimes our brokenness expresses itself through human sexuality. Sometimes our brokenness expresses itself through greed and avarice and lying and cheating. But everybody that comes into this world comes into this world now broken. I don't know if you know this or not, but you, you got your genes, who you are, from your parents. You might not be happy about it. You might not have wanted that round face. You might have wanted that elongated one. But you got those genes from your parents. Have you ever taken the pictures of your children or you specifically and compared them to your parents when they were children? And have you noticed the likeness? Do you understand that as a part of that likeness, that physical likeness, there is the sin nature that is the likeness that we bear with one another all the way back to Adam and Eve? Every one of us is fallen in sin. There are no non-sinful people. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Why? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, who's the one man? Adam. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Look down to verse 18. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that's Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. That's Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. All of us have been made to be sinners. All of us. Charles Spurgeon said, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, now listen to his words, 
that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Another writer says, sin has distorted us and it has disordered us. So those false identities we keep giving ourselves are not a sign of how God has created us, but they're a sign of how the fall has distorted our thinking. Why don't people love like we think they should love? Why don't people love according to the model that God gave to us in Adam and Eve? Because sin has corrupted us. And sometimes that corruption is found and evidenced in human sexuality. And it causes that kind of confusion. It causes that kind of misunderstanding. It causes that kind of of same-sex love. Because sin has distorted every one of us. So before you point the finger at somebody else, maybe your problem isn't in the realm of human sexuality, but you have a problem just like everybody else does. We are all sinful people. You say, what's the evidence of that? Well... I'm always a little bit hesitant to give surveys because surveys can be skewed. But even if these are slightly skewed, they give you an idea of what's going on in modern America. One survey showed that more than half of American parents would support their teenagers' request to transition to another gender. More than half. The Barner Group found that 41% of practicing Christians... Are you listening? 41% of practicing Christians believe cohabitation is a good idea. More than 60% of Christians on a Christian dating site said they would have sex before marriage. 56% said they thought it was appropriate to move in with someone. We're, We're talking about Christians. People who say that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord who have the same Bible that I have. Obviously they don't know it. But they have the same Bible that I have. By the way, I don't know it as well as I need to know it. That's why I'm always studying it. Another study says 32% of men ages 18 to 30 admit to having an addiction to porn. And I've seen statistics that are far higher than that. Addicted to porn. Do you realize that your children, some of them are addicted to porn? They're holding it in their hand. It's called a phone, a cell phone. You can't supervise everything they're seeing and everything they're doing, and you can't stop everything that can come to it. And some of them become addicted. Pew Research Center found that 54% of Christians believe, 54% of Christians believe that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged. And denominations today are in mass moving in that direction. In 2017, the Gallup organization found that 69% of Americans believe it is morally acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. 69% of Americans, not not Christians, of, of Americans said it's morally acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. Did you know that, honey? Don't even think about it. I know what she thinks about it. She said there's a box waiting for me that's in the ground somewhere (laughs) if I cross that line. You say, what are you telling us? I'm telling you that there is this immorality that exists in society and apparently even amongst Christian people who name the name of Jesus Christ who say they follow the Bible but apparently either don't know the Bible or they've chosen to call it into question as Satan did in the very beginning. And the result is that we have a society that's adrift morally. We have a society that's humanistic. I'm God. The world is about me. It's about me being happy. It's about me being satisfied. And it's about postmodernism. There are no rules. I get to make them up as I go. As long as I don't hurt anybody else, it shouldn't matter. Well, it does if you're a believer in Jesus and you want to follow his word. It matters. You see, the the massive shift in how people view sexual issues isn't just a cultural trend. It's evidence of a spiritual battle. And here's the sad part. Are you with me? Here's the sad part. The world system has done a better job at educating your children than the church has done at educating your children. 
And some of that is because your children aren't in church. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time your teenagers sat upstairs and listened to the preaching of the Word of God? There is a spiritual warfare going on for our children. Do you understand that God's divine design was male and female that come together in a complementary way so that they can potentially reproduce and replenish the earth? There's a complementarity that exists. But what's caused the confusion and the cultural shift is... In the fall, it's not in some psychological journal, in some medical journal. It's in the fall of mankind. We became corrupted. We all were deformed in some way, spiritually, intellectually, immorally. And maybe yours comes out in a different way, but yours is still there. Because all of us are sinners. We live in a society where people don't, they don't want you to tell them what they are. Don't call me a sinner. Matter of fact, we live in a Christian community where people don't want to be told that they're sinners. Sinners saved by grace, yes, but you know we're sinners. We don't want to be told that. Now listen to me. It's the fall of mankind into sin that explains why hormones can be out of balance, genitals can be deformed, and the brain's sexual responses can be faulty from birth. Do you realize why people get sick and die? It isn't just because of some illness or some bug or some other form that invades our bodies. It's because we live in a sin-cursed world. Death entered when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. And that death whether you believe in the federal headship of, of, of Adam or you believe in the natural headship of Adam, that's a theological discussion beyond our discussion today. It was all passed down so that every person born into the world is sinful. It was David who said, in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin. That didn't mean that she went out and had an affair. That meant that David being formed in her womb was somebody who had inherited this same nature that goes all the way back to Adam. Have you ever noticed that you don't have to teach your children how to do the wrong things? <laughs> I have a pastor friend who's he's now retired. He said he was candidating at a church. He had young children and they apparently had picked up some words from the television set. And he was on the front porch of this church where he had just finished preaching, he's talking to the deacons and one of, her children, one of his children comes out with one of these words. <laughs> you know, his eyes got as big as saucers. You, you can imagine his wife's eyes. You know, where did you get that word? You don't have to teach children wrong. You have to teach them what? You have to teach them right. They pick, up, they pick up the wrong pretty easy. I can remember our son, our youngest son, our, well, our youngest son, we only got one son. <laughs> our youngest and oldest son. I can remember when, for some reason, he thought something inside, he was a little guy, couldn't see in the trash can, but he knew something in there was something he wanted. Don't do that, JD! What do you think he does? He just keeps digging. Don't do that, JD! Keeps digging. J.D., if you do that, you're going to get spanked. He keeps digging. You don't have to teach your kids wrong. You have to teach them right. And that's the reason this fall of man in the garden, why there is death, why there is disease, why there is destruction, why there is war, why there is the out-of-balance hormones and genitals that are deformed and the sexual responses of the brain that are faulty. It's because of the fall. Every aspect of our humanity, including our gender, has the, has the capacity to be affected by the fall. You know, I thought about bringing some examples from modern society. I have a whole bunch in my files in Evernote where I clip them when I see them. I decided not to bring those. You know, there's enough of them in the Scripture. 
evidences of that sinful nature. You can find it in a lot of different ways, but just in the realm of sexuality. Think about Adam and Eve. Once they had partaken of the forbidden fruit, they're They recognize their nakedness, they're ashamed, they begin sewing together fig leaves because they're ashamed, they're hiding, and for the first time, you hear the word fear. Or think about Genesis 18 and 19, where you find Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot in those two cities. And I realize that there's been a whole redefinition that says, well, those people in Lot, they were just being inhospitable. Yeah, I'd say standing at the door, demanding the two men that have come to the city come out so that they can carnally know them. Yeah, I'd say that's being pretty inhospitable. But long before those two men ever got there, there was already discussion about the wickedness that was in the city, let alone Second Peter or what Jude has to say about it. Or think about Genesis chapter 34 when Dinah is raped. Or think about Genesis 38 where Tamar tricks her father-in-law into a sexual relationship with her. Or think about 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David commits adultery and then tries to cover it up. David's on the roof of his house when he should have been out on the front lines with his soldiers. And in those evening hours, he saw the silhouette of a beautiful woman. That wasn't unusual for her to be there. That wasn't as if she was doing something wrong or alluring. That would have been a normal occurrence. He wouldn't have been there. And the Scripture says he sent and he took her to himself. Or think about 2 Samuel 13 and the story of Amnon and Tamar, a different Tamar. Or think about John chapter 4, the woman at the well. That, the, the Scripture says that woman had five husbands. Count them. One, two, three, four, five. And Jesus says, and the man you're living with is not your husband. Or think about the woman that was caught The scripture says in the very act of adultery by the Pharisees. Don't you wonder how they caught him? I caught her. I mean, that's... They caught her and they brought her probably half clothed, threw her at the feet of Jesus. You remember? That's when he says, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. A woman caught in adultery. Or think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the story is related to us about an incestuous man. He's having an affair with his stepmother. And the church is happy about it because they're so generous and magnanimous to let him stay. Do nothing about it. On and on we can go. Those are just a few samples. What is wrong in humanity? Why is there a drug epidemic? Why is there death? Why is there destruction? Why are there so many problems in the world in which we live? Why is there war? Why is there sexual confusion? It's called the fall of man. And every one of us are touched by that fall. And every one of us have the propensity to evil. And while many of us restrain it to some degree, all of us are broken. So we have the divine design. We have the effects of the fall. But thirdly, I want to tell you that our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. I don't have time to take you to John chapter 3, but if I were to take you there, verses 1 to 16 is a story that probably some of you already know. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to talk to Jesus. He wants to ask Jesus, how do you do these works that you're doing? These, These things that you're teaching, where do they come from? He's asking these kind of questions, and Jesus just buzzes right on by those questions. And Jesus looks at this religious leader of the day and he said, are you ready? Because if in your first birth you are born broken, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must be, do you know the next words? Born again. You know why you need to be born again? Because your first birth has got a real problem. Your first birth has been touched by the nature of sin. And Jesus comes to this man, Nicodemus, or actually this man comes to Nicodemus, uh, comes to Jesus and says, you know, we don't understand you. How can we understand you? Please make it clear to us. And then what does he say? You must be born again. Why does he need to be born again? Because his first birth has been damaged. And he must be born again. 
Do you believe that God loves sinners? He absolutely loves sinners, but He never affirms or marginalizes their sin. Never affirms or marginalizes their sin. I hear people say sometimes, well, Jesus was a friend of sinners, as if Jesus showed up and just got involved in the sin that all these people were doing. Like, we're just all good buddies. We're all going to do the same thing. Jesus was a friend of sinners because He brought them the way out. He brought them His love. He brought them His grace. And He brought them His mercy. And He brought them their freedom. Not because He came to them to be like them, to do the sins they're doing, or to give approval to their sins. Jesus never lowered the bar for what is sin. And yet, it says that while we were yet What's the word? Sinners. What did Christ do? Christ died for us. Now let me tell you, in the, in the gospel story, in the, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is freedom. You're a slave to your sin until you meet Jesus Christ. You're a slave to your sin nature until you meet Jesus Christ. After that, you may yield to your sin nature, but you're no longer a slave to that sin nature. But something else happens. In being born again, you're freed from that sin nature, the slavery to that sin nature, but you're also indwelt by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And now you have a power to live in ways that you couldn't live before because God is there to help you to live in that way. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm almost through, stay with me. Unfortunately, the modern church speaks of God's love in humanistic self-serving ways that gives people liberty to live exactly how they want and still claim to be in fellowship with a holy God. I mean, after all, God wants everybody to be happy, doesn't He? He loves you just like you are. He doesn't want you to change. He just wants you to be able to express who you are. God help us. I don't want to express who I am. I want to express who Jesus is in me. Amen? While God loves us just as we are, He always seeks to change us into His image. And it's through the gospel that that's made possible. Listen, you can sit down and you can talk to a counselor as long as you want. And I'm not suggesting you shouldn't do that. You can go through as many therapy sessions as you want. But you only find freedom from sin in Jesus Christ. Now somebody has to help you after that. But the only way you find freedom is in Jesus Christ. He sets you free from the slavery to sin. And he empowers you with his ability to live like he would have you to live. Not according to your feelings, but according to His Word. And that is our hope. I'm glad to be able to tell you, you've messed up in one of these areas. No matter what area it is that you've messed up, there is a God in heaven who loves you and will save you from your sin. You say, okay. So help me apply this, Pastor. If God's divine design is male and female, and it's the fall of man that has messed all of this up, and the only way to have myself right with God and have the ability to do what God would have me to do is to be born a second time, not in my mother's womb, but born from above a second time, how do I apply all this to my life? Well, number one, we have to know what the Scripture says about sexuality. Do you know? Obviously, there's a lot of Christians that don't know. Because if they're asked the question, is homosexuality a sin? I, I can't answer that question. Just go to the Bible and read it for yourself. What kind of an answer is that? That's a profit loss answer. That's a bottom line. How much money will I lose answer? We've got to know what the Bible says about human sexuality. What it says about... God's creation, about man's fall, and about our hope that's in Jesus Christ. Number two, we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. It doesn't matter if somebody's different than you are. It doesn't matter. You still have to love them. Jesus didn't just die for those that he liked. Jesus died for what kind of people? Sinners. All of us are sinners. 
And now he calls us to love. We've got to get rid of these angry invectives. We've got to get rid of uh, the violence. I don't think any of you have ever been that way. Got to get rid of the violence. There's no, there's no place for calling people names. We do like the Good Samaritan. If anybody, if there was no, if there was love, no love loss between people, there was no love, love loss between the Samaritan and the Jew. And yet the others who just passed by the man who had been beaten and left for dead just walked right on around him. But the Samaritan who had every reason to say, I'm not going to love him. I know what he said about me and what he's done to me and how he treats me. The Good Samaritan stopped poured in the ointments to help the wounds, put him on his animal, took him down to an inn, paid at the inn for him to be able to stay, and said, when I get back, I'll pay you what else we owe you. And then Jesus looks at everybody and says, who's your neighbor? Who's living around you? Maybe they're living together. Maybe they're committing adultery, and you know what nobody else does. Mm. Maybe it's the same-sex couple living next to you. Ask yourself, how can I show them the love of God through me? Number three, we have to be prepared to speak the truth in love. It's time for us to stop being quiet, Christians. You say, well, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. You cannot put the genie back in the, in, in the bottle. It's too late. It's going to cost you. But if Christians remain silent, where will we be? We have to learn to speak the truth in love. We don't have to be harsh or unkind or untactful. Number four, we have to share the gospel freely and openly. We have to tell everybody we reach. You say, I love him. I, don't, I love her. And I, I, hey, look, if somebody is on their way to hell, you don't back up and get out of the way and let them go. You step in front of them. And you tell them the gospel. Jesus Christ can save you. And Jesus Christ can make you what, you want, what He wants you to be. And Jesus Christ can set you free from your sins. And Jesus Christ can give you life eternal. And Jesus Christ can give you purpose and meaning. And Jesus Christ can give you what you cannot seem to accomplish on your own. And number five, finally... We have to disciple our children. Now hear me. We have to disciple our children in both spirituality and sexuality. Didn't used to be that way, but it's that way today. We have to disciple our children in spirituality and sexuality. Don't send your children out to the public school system or into the college system without answers without an understanding of what God has to say, without a foundation. You say, well, we do that. We, we, we expect our church to do that for us. Listen, we supplement what you do. If you're not doing your part, we can't make up for what you're not doing. You have to disciple your children in both spirituality and sexuality. You say, preacher, that's just too deep for me. Well... Here's a great book, God's Design and Why It Matters, Rethinking Sexuality by Dr. Julie Slatery, clinical psychologist. Takes her training, brings together the scripture, and shows you the biblical model of sexuality. Or if that's too hard for you, because it's too thick, I got something even smaller, written by Sam Alberry. Is God anti-gay? You know how to answer that question? The question is no, he's not anti-gay. He loves people who are gay. But he's come to save them and to change them and to bring them under his mastery and under his lordship. Those are pretty hard things to hear, aren't they? They get easier next week. But you've got to lay a foundation. You've got to understand what I don't understand, what I don't understand is how Christians who are supposed to know the Bible, who are supposed to be disciples of Jesus under His Lordship, what I don't understand is how Christians 
are making really good progress, but they have absolutely no sense of where they are. How can that be? How can that be? We can't let it go on, Christians. I'm not angry with the world. I don't expect the world to understand my point of view. Until they know Christ, they will never understand my point of view because they don't understand God's point of view. I can't understand why you don't understand my point of view. 